Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! So this morning, um, like I said, we're going we're gonna to continue this theme and this time of worship and talking about fear and anger and how they could be linked. And just to explain a little bit about why we're doing this in particular is we're in a message series that we're going through this summer that's all about a new liturgical flow that we created. Um, and the reason why we created it is to do that makes we come here every week, you come to church, but there's nothing that we have to do that makes it church other than how are we connecting with the nature of who God is. And one of the things that we often do, as we talk about, is we ignore our own stories or our own feelings or emotions or the things that have been happening in our lives to reach this peak of God. Um, And we actually think that going through them is the way to do that. That ignoring them doesn't help us. It creates maybe this refuge and this respite for like an hour where you kind of zap out of your life and your world. But you're going to go back into it. And if this God thing, if the spirituality thing isn't woven into the whole thing, then what, what are we doing here? And so we created movements like confession of fear, a hospitality to grief and sadness, a release of shame, um, a celebration of joy and a promise of hope. And so we're just stopping with those. So we're stopping right now with our confession of fear because for some of you, confession of fear doesn't mean anything. And that fear is lost. So we want to turn fear and look at what are some other aspects of fear. Last week we looked at fear as loss of control. And this year, we, uh, this, year this week we want to look at how fear and anger can be linked. Um, so if you weren't able to join us, we did an event in this room last night called Age of Attention. And, um, and then we went out, the, the four people that put it on, uh, Scott Erickson, who's an artist, Hillary McBride, who's an author and podcaster and therapist, Nate Staniforth, who's a magician, um, and, and I, they hadn't met each other until 15, 30 minutes before the show happened. So then afterwards, we went out to get to know each other, and it, it, it was the start of a joke. A pastor, a magician, a therapist, and an artist walk into a bar. So... <laughs> We had a great time. I am also, I'm, I mean, you maybe can hear it in my voice a little bit. I am a little too tired from getting so ant. I had so much fun yesterday, and we're going to do more of it. So that was too much apologizing. But I want to bring up our friend who is here for another day, Hillary McBride. If you would come on up, uh, if you would welcome Hillary. So Hillary is here from, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll grab mine. You do, you do, you. Is here from Vancouver. This is awkward. I know. There's got to be a better way. No, okay. there is. <laughs> it's go. usually it. better than this. We did it. Is here from Vancouver. You just flew in yesterday. I did, I did. Ooh, I'm going to get To be this. with you wonderful people. Yeah, and yeah. you're still here. Yeah, That's here. fantastic. Um, and for those who don't know, Hillary, talk a little bit about your work, and could you could you maybe tell people why you were in town? Because it's still oh, one of my favorite things. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm I'm a researcher, therapist, and I write and speak about the work that I do. I actually originally was in town yesterday to uh, to talk at an academic conference about some research I've done related to your postpartum and the perinatal period. So 
uh, from pregnancy all the way to the first year postpartum. And some of the research and clinical work that I've done is looked specifically at, can I talk about it? Yeah, mm -hmm. oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, about sexual dysfunction and challenges that parents have resuming normal sexual activity postpartum after a baby and talking about the biopsychosocial components of sexuality that are often misunderstood. So I developed an intervention that got some kind of some attention. So I was presenting about it again yesterday at the at the conference. But the idea is that uh, there's a narrative around women postpartum or around women just in general that you're a mom or you're sexual and you can't be both. And so to disrupt that narrative to talk about sexuality in motherhood and some of the challenges that parents face in negotiating what it's like to have different relational and family needs but still want to be connected in a sexually intimate way, how we help them negotiate those challenges uh, to normalize the struggle because it is so normal. In fact, it's almost not appropriate to call it a challenge because it's so normal. It becomes a challenge because we don't have enough language to understand it, so people feel alone and feel shame, uh, but have done quite a bit of work doing research into the, the neurophysiology of sexual arousal postpartum and was uh, talking about what we do about that when people are, are having a hard time. Yeah. I love hearing so much when people do something that I have not thought about before and have like dedicated hundreds of hours to like researching and helping people in that, I think like how is there not much, maybe not for you, that work. If we have all these amazing people doing these amazing things, it charges me up too much. Maybe not for you, that's okay. <laughs> Whew, okay. Okay. <laughs> it's great, and, and you, the thing, intervention you created, can I say? Yeah. It won an international award. I think that's yeah. so great. Thank you. I think what, what spoke most to me about getting the award is that the people who recognized my work said that the work that I was doing to support women to be at home in their bodies mattered. So it felt like it was kind of about me, but it was also about saying like, oh, this is something that's been missing and we care about this. Uh, so it, it felt like that, that was cool. I can put that on my CV or whatever. But like, oh, this matters to you. Women and their experiences of their bodies matter to other people. Uh, yeah. That was a good mm, from the room. Mm, well done. Okay. Anyone wants to talk about uh, spontaneous versus responsive arousal later? Later, Minna knows. If anyone wants to talk about androgens and how androgens are impacted by breastfeeding, so it's hard to have spontaneous arousal, you let me know. We talk about that later. <laughs> We're gonna be at church today. Amen. Okay. Amen. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Okay. Let's this do it. Fun. Here we go. So, what we want pivot. to talk about... Hard pivot. It's a, well, I mean, no, maybe not Soft so pivot. Yeah, soft pivot. it's just pivoting. Okay. Um, so, let's talk about, because I really, I don't know. Mm. Fear and anger, mm -hmm. are they related? How are they related? And how mm. have you seen that in a therapeutic setting? Okay, lots, lots there. Yeah. Volumes, truly. I like what your, your miss, your slip earlier about doing this for a year. I was like, no, we could do this for a year. We could do this. This year, we're talking about fear and anger. There's like a lot there. Uh, Did you just become our therapist in residence? I might have. Yes. We got a Hillary. You get inner healing. You get inner healing. Um, it's like the Oprah, the therapy Oprah. No? Okay. Uh, so the connection between fear and anger is different neurologically, we would say, than it is in terms of how we understand it culturally. So neurologically, fear and anger are processed in the exact same part of the brain called the amygdala. It's our alarm bell system that says, there's something going on here that's not quite right, and I need to get activated 
to do something about it. I either need to split, I need to, I need to set a boundary, I need to enact some sort of like uh, consequence or barrier, but there is an activation of our nervous system to keep us safe. That's what's going on neurologically, and it triggers a bunch of things in, a, in some different hormonal, like some glands in our brain, and then our, you know, our adrenal glands, and we get all this stuff released into our bloodstream to give us the energy to do the things that we need to do to keep us safe. So neurologically speaking, fear and anger are bedfellows. Um, they're part of this alarm bell system. But um, I would say that to have an, an important and, and meaningful conversation about fear and anger, we would have to talk about how we understand fear and anger neurologically different than we do in a cultural sense. So if I say anger, what might come to mind who's faced and who has a violent presentation a person who is loud, whose face is like red and there are veins bulging and you know, their voice is really loud and they're holding this menacing posture. That might be what comes to mind for you when I say anger. But actually what anger is neurologically is an activation in certain muscle groups. That's it, really. Uh, faster heart rate, usually warmth in your hands. That's it. But we don't know how, what to do with that sensory experience. We haven't been taught how to ride that wave of intensity that moves through our body in such a way that it could take us somewhere good or connecting or healthy. And we've actually seen people display what I would call like violent behavior, violent relationally or physically. And, and we've been told that that's anger. So we think that's anger. But that's actually the, the misunderstanding, misrepresentation, unhealthy management of what anger actually is. That's violence. But anger is just some chemicals moving in your body that make your palms hot and make you say, I need to set a boundary here. So fear, similarly, we think of fear, even when we use it in, in spiritual settings, as like, as this really bad thing, we, you know, God came to, to set us free so we don't have to be in fear and we don't have a spirit of fear and all of these like colloquial uses of that word. But neurologically speaking, fear is a very important survival system, is good. If you could walk away from this with anything, it would be that fear is good. Fear is very good. It's when fear, the switch of fear gets turned on and doesn't get turned off, and it starts to make decisions in our life for us when we're not actually in danger anymore, that's when fear becomes the problem. But fear in itself is good. It's when we don't know how to work with it and respond to it and manage it that it takes over. But it in itself, it's really good. And there's a branch of our nervous system that gets, our again, our heart beating and makes our pupils dilate. There's actually a little muscle in our inner ear that changes when we experience fear that helps us hear different frequencies so that we can pay better attention to, like, threats that are around us. So our body is wired to be like, is there danger around? Is there danger around? And then we're meant to be like, oh, there's no tigers. Whew. Okay. Got it. Okay. I can be at rest. But if we've been told that feeling, that like activation or making the sounds that come with it or the reassurance seeking behaviors that come with like, am I okay? If we've been told that those are bad, then we can't actually again move through it in a way that helps our body know that the threat is over or it was just a perceived threat. So fear isn't bad, it's the mismanagement or the misunderstanding of it that's unhelpful.
Okay, so you're already doing this. This is great. So I'm interested in like, I'm hearing fear and anger, same part of the brain. It's these things that move through us, but it sounds like there's also ways that there's different ways that because of culture, we demonstrate it into the world. So what are some ways that you've seen that are healthy ways to move through them or ways that help people actually move through them? And what are avoidant behaviors? So maybe people can be more tuned into their own body and themselves. When am I sliding into those? Yeah. So emotions that we have in our body happen in a social context and we get messages about those emotions. We, we get feedback. Uh, when you're angry, you've got to go to your room. You gotta, you're very bad. You need to go away from me. You're afraid. You got to get that under control. You need to go away from me. And because we're wired for attachment and connection when we're in development, when our brains are developing, often we learn like, oh, to, to be close to the people who are caring for me, I got to lock this down. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna shove it down as a way to get my relational needs met. So when we have those emotions come up, it, it uh, kind of triggers maybe this coping response that we've had to manage this other need, which is the relational attachment need. So I wanna say that uh, that's one story. There could be other ones that we have about emotions, like you know, there can be a gendered narrative emotion. Fear is okay if you're a woman because then you, you can play the damsel in distress, or you know, anger is okay if you're if you're a man because uh, because then you're powerful, and that's a great way to assert your dominance on the world, on other people, on con- in context. So we have stories about emotions, and and we learn what to do with those emotions based on keeping our ourselves connected to the people who determine if we belong or not. And at some point in our adult lives, we have to say, like, well, wait a second, there's, there's something that's going on here that isn't really working anymore. And sometimes people don't know that they have to change their relationship with anger or fear until it's the consequences of that start to catch up with them. So someone's saying, like, well, you, why don't you want to come on this, like, camping trip with me? Or, you know, oh, you don't want to make a new friend at that place because you're afraid that they're going to hurt you? Or... I don't like to be around you because you're yelling at me so much. So sometimes we're not even aware of the story that we we have about emotion until other people tell us that it's creating um, some negative consequences in our life, and then we've got to do something about it. So it's there's so much individual variability in how we express emotion, but some of the ways that we can do that was your question, like how we do that in healthy ways. On how they've turned interested in, like, what are ways there are that for even just for individuals, yeah. some examples of people on how they've turned the switch from avoiding mm. and maybe engaging it or. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I'll go back a little bit and say something that I'd mentioned earlier, which is that all ama- emotions, like a lot of stuff in our world, come in a wave form. So they actually, we get these kind of little somatic cues in our body that tell us, oh, we're feeling something. And at that point, a lot of us have learned to shut off. So we don't even ride the wave till it comes down the other side and get all the goodies that come from our body actually feeling the relief of an emotion. But we, we feel something, oh, and then we shut off. And we move into like, this, you know, the violent expression of our sense of powerlessness. Or we move into like a you know, an avoidant behavior that takes us out of a situation that is actually okay for us to be in. But if what we did is we paid attention to the the cues in our body that were saying, oh, there's some sensation here, there's something, something to pay attention to, if we stay with those in an observational, non-judgmental way, 
our body. Oh, now it's, it's going to be increase the intensity a little bit, which then can make us feel scared because we're like, oh, no, it's, it's going to be here forever. Ah, right. And then we get even more scared because we don't know what to do with that. But it always comes down the other side. It's like a bell curve or a sine curve that our sensation in our body comes up and then comes down the other side. And it's after the intensity is crested that our body usually does two things. One, it releases endogenous opioids. So we get this sense of like, oh, that felt good. And this applies not only to fear and anger, but to sadness right? and to disgust and to all sorts of things that we feel like we can't manage. So we get endogenous opioid release, which is our body's way of saying, I'm going to give you something that feels good. I'm going to just I'm going to settle things down a little bit. Oh, that feels nice. But then we also get another thing, which is the, the innate wisdom of the emotion comes up after it's the peak of intensity has crested. And so anger will often say to us, you need to talk to that person. They can't keep treating you that way. But when the intense said to us about move through it with violence... We can take the wisdom that the anger said to us about, that was a violation of your boundaries. Something needs to be talked about here. Or fear will say, maybe you need some more information about how you can keep safe. Or fear will say, why don't you go get a hug, right? Or why don't you take a few deep breaths? So if we're looking at flipping the switch um, in terms of how we experience emotions and doing it in healthy ways, it's actually by going into the body and mindfully being aware of any sensation that's moving in our body and staying with that until uh, we feel this release come over us. And that is the great, the best time to act on an emotion is actually when it feels like the emotion has passed just a little bit. You get all of the wisdom that was there from the emotion, but without having to, to move out of a place of intensity that could hurt you or somebody else. So in that, can yes. you divert from that? So if you get afraid... Mm -hmm. Of this emotion and the size of it and the scope of it, mm -hmm. can you divert? As in, like, can you uh, get the and I forget the the opioid release? And yeah, the, yeah. So divert as in, like, can you uh, disconnect from it? Or yeah, disconnect you, yeah. or you go somewhere else because yeah. of the. So usually two things happen if we're trying to get away from emotion. Uh, one of them we would call defenses, and this is a category of anything we do to try to not feel. We intellectualize. We're like, I'm going to understand my grief. If I understand my grief then it's really going to make sense why I lost that person I love. Like, and we try and solve like body-heart problems with stories in our mind, and they don't really work so well together. So we intellectualize, we numb. Well, everything happens for a reason. I don't yeah. think oh, so. I know. I'm That's sorry. Right. Go ahead. God wouldn't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm glad you laughed. You that laughed. is the right yeah. response. Someone else had a trauma response in here from that. Yeah. So... Uh, we, we intellectualize, uh, and that would be a good example of what we would call a spiritual bypass, where we, like, tell a spiritual story to, like, make ourselves feel okay, but without actually staying with what's happening. Uh, we numb out, we avoid, we blame. What we think is actually this, this defense against feeling is often where we get what we think is anger, but is actually this out-of-control kind of violent response. That's not anger in terms of a, a neurological um, kind of categorical emotion. That's the inability to feel anger or fear when we're like, Argh! so that's not, that's not actual anger, but we call that anger. So it's kind of confusing. We're using the word in two ways. Um, 
So we can, we can intellectualize, we can numb, we can avoid, we can get defensive, uh, we can use substances, we can self-harm, we can eat, we can, you know, distract. Phone scrolling is a great way to avoid existential dread, right? All of that kind of stuff. So we defend. And then one of the other strategies is what we call, it's not really a strategy, but it's a thing our body does called inhibitory emotion, which is when we're feeling something that we learned a long time ago was not okay to feel and shame comes up or anxiety comes up because we're like, oh no, I'm experiencing something I shouldn't be experiencing. So if you had a message growing up that fear is bad, don't feel fear, then as soon as fear comes up, like so does the message, this is bad. So now we not only have fear, but we have the shame about feeling the fear. And shame has this really interesting role of shutting our nervous system down. It actually pulls our head down, pulls our eyes away from other people so we can't see ourselves being judged is really what our body is doing. Um, and we have, again, a bunch of stuff happening neurologically through certain aspects of our nervous system. As we're talking about this crumple, right, to, to feel like we're in defeat. But as we're talking about this riding this wave of intensity, at some point, if we don't know how to stay with it, there are these two places we go, the defenses or the inhibitory affect. Both of them try and take us away from or shut down the actual feeling that's happening. So this makes me think, and I'm interested because I'm, I'm springing a question on you. I'm mm. sorry. Yeah. But I'm interested with fear and anger, how specifically religion plays into this. Mm -hmm. Because as you're talking about these things, I'm struck with, if you grew up in the church, like we talk about, like God knit you together in your mother's womb. Like you were knit to me and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. All these things about this intimate God, the creator with you. But the subtext of that, because of a lot of the Christian culture is, and you screwed it all up. So it's you were knit together. You were made in this particular, but you screwed it all up. And so you need to get Jesus and Jesus is going to fix it all. But in this framework, if we're, I can see how I don't have to exit out of my body. If I stay in it, I can see how God is working and how God created me to be in it. And there's this incredible truth and wisdom. There's all of these things that's in there. But in trying to arrive at that, Christianity has given cultural messages that have totally flipped it to the other way. So I'm interested how you've seen Christian culture impact people that have come in to see you in a therapeutic setting where that's actually derailed them from yeah. engaging those, or if you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the stories about fear, like if you really trust God, then you'll, not, you'll never be afraid. Um, stories uh, about God being angry, and that's the way uh, that, the, that the world, that the universe is set up, is someone who's in charge is really, really, really angry in a kind of violent and destructive way. And how those stories about what's happening on a bigger picture then actually translate to how we respond to the cues that we have that are, are good. Like, there is no one in this room who would not. It is fear. If you saw someone you love step out in front of traffic without seeing a bus coming, it is fear that charges up your body with adrenaline, right, or epinephrine, cortisol, that gives you the energy to be like, right, and grab the person and pull them back onto the sidewalk. That's so good. It's so good. But if we've been told that feeling fear is somehow like disobedient or untrustworthy of God, then it makes us want to shove that down even more. 
And not just when we're on the sidewalk, but in any sense, like we're about to move to a big city or walking into a church and we've been hurt in a church before or like any of the places where we can feel fear. So I think people in trying to be good Christians have felt like they had to disconnect from themselves to have mastery or, or control over what their and maybe their impulses around emotion are as a way, again, to mention before, as I mentioned before, to secure belonging. Because if you think about that system I was talking about, about attachment and how we learn, like how other people respond to our emotions because we're social creatures, if we're in a faith context that is also our, like we're told is our family, is our community, and in that faith context, we're being told all these stories about emotions, we're gonna learn pretty quick in order to belong here, I need to cut that part of myself off. But I talked about this a little bit last night. It's people coming into therapy because this defensive strategies that they're using to try and get away from their emotions, those defensive strategies aren't working anymore, right? Like I'm, I'm screaming at my kids all the time. My wife sent me to see you because she doesn't want me screaming at the kids and I don't, I don't think there's a problem, right? Because this is what my dad did to me. Right? That's a story that I hear lots, and people not realizing that the screaming of the kids is, is actually the symptom of this other problem, which is like, you don't know how to feel. So when you troll them and they're something, it's very scary for you, and you want to make, you want to control them and their behavior to make the thing that's disruptive for you go, to go away. That's what's going on there. So I think because we belong to each other, you just... <laughs> I got a six and an eight year old. That's too yeah. real. I can keep going, yeah. but okay. <laughs> I'm gonna be. Over. I gotta sit with that one for a while. Well, so like I don't want to digress too much, but most of the things that we do around social control of emotions are because we don't know how to feel our own, and because we're wired to connect to each other. When someone else feels, we feel too. But if we don't know how to feel and we don't like how we're feeling. If someone else elicits that feeling in us, we get upset at them and we want to make them go away. Take your grief somewhere else. Take your trauma and your pain somewhere else, which is us really essentially saying, I just don't know how to handle it. And I see you as the problem because you're bringing it up in me. So I'm gonna make you go away. And that shows up in faith communities, at work, in parenting, right? So you're, you're feeling something, it's too much for me, but instead of me taking ownership of my experience and my response, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to construct a story where you're the problem. So I'm interested in that, too, how, because in the social conditioning, we're looking and finding, well, how, are the, how can I stay attached to you? Mm-hmm. And when church becomes tribal, and when I say tribal, I just mean this is who we are. This is how we identify ourselves, and we're not like X, Y, and Z. But any tribal setting is going to be restricted and have kind of norms and we have some homogeny, which means we kind of do things the same way. So anyone within that community that doesn't fit within the homogeny is just suffering. But and I really think this isn't backward, but Jesus' whole thing is like, you keep on trying to make this tribal. You keep on trying to make this, but actually like here, let's look at the faith of the Canaanite woman, the one that you don't think belongs. Let's go hang, let's look at the faith of this here. Let's go up into the Decapolis with all these people you don't think exist. Let, let's, let's look at the faith of this Roman centurion is Jesus keeps on opening up 
this like, well, it's like here, because it's like, no, God is too big for you to just be able to find who you are in this small thing. It has to be bigger than that. And I'm, I, the reason why I bring that up is I'm so struck in what you're saying that I find in my own culture ways that that has been really, where I grew up, that was really true. I had models that like, that's not how you show your emotion, your behavior, you're quiet, you go be mad somewhere else. That is a line I have heard verbatim. You need to go be mad in your room. Go be sad in your room. But if I just look at other cultures, that's not there at all. That there is a corporate anger that can say, oh, there's another way of doing this so that it's not, but, but if I don't have that, if I live in that smaller world, then I feel like I'm interested in the impact on, on people when you live in that small space and you don't see any other examples, then the only conclusion is, well, there's something wrong with me, mm-hmm. that I'm wrong, I must be wrong. And that this is kind of the danger that, that Jesus is trying to get at, is, is that if you keep on making it so small, then there has to be something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. That's why uh, in phenomenology, which is a branch of philosophy that I'm, I'm really interested in, it's about like, what is it, what is it like to live? What is it like to be alive? It comes, uh, it's situated within existentialism. So what is living? What is the human experience? Visibility. Phenomenology, um, a lot of philosophers define power as visibility. Uh, So power is not who is the loudest and who has the most control, but it's do I have access to a representation of diverse experiences of being human? So people who are most visible have the most power, which is part of why when we increase diversity in communities, then everybody feels like they've got a voice because power is not represented in one body that looks like this, but look at all of the visible representation of humanity that remind me I get I have a place here too. Yeah, that's mm. good. Can I go back to something you said about fear, or do Please. you want to ask something first? There? No, I okay. want you to do that first. Okay. So, um, fear. I want to define, uh, distinguish something. Fear is hardwired into our body, but we can learn what to be afraid of. And because of belonging. Right? We can learn to be afraid of people who threaten our belonging, not because they're actually a danger to see them as a threat, but because, uh, because we've learned to see them as a threat. Right? So this is a, if we break it down into maybe more concretized examples, like most of us learned to be afraid of spiders, because we had other people model to us like, <gasps> right, when we see it, which is like me. That's like, it's really bizarre also to be afraid of spiders and know that that was like a socialization thing, that they've never actually hurt me. And I can understand it intellectually, but I can't stop the scream when I see the spider in my house. So uh, we learn to be afraid of things too, sometimes because they've hurt us, but sometimes because other people who we want to align ourselves with have told us that's scary. And it's a really important task of, I think, our development spiritually, psychologically, to at some point say, did I learn to be afraid of those things because they're actually bad? Or did I learn to be afraid of those things because I'm afraid of those things? It helped me to be connected to someone who is also afraid of those things. Yeah. I'm interested, too, in what do you do when the fear that is created culturally, you start to identify 
with, you grew up in a culture where you were afraid of something, but you weren't associating with that part of yourself. And then you're like, oh no, I'm afraid of me. Is that like internalized homophobia? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, your question is like, what do you do about that? Or yeah. Your, and why does it happen? Or yes. What? And what, how do you, because I, I think it happens to a lot of us in a lot of ways. How, what is the way to kind of work through that? And how do you sit with it? Do you sit with it? Well, uh, right. <laughs> we are a million miles off script. Yeah. I am yeah. so no, no, sorry. No, 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 that's fine. But I was just thinking like, it's pretty, it's pretty dense, complex, yeah. individualized stuff because I think at some point where we made alliance in an experiential way, not just an intellectual way, revisiting where we made alliances with groups to create a sense of belonging and drop in developmentally for ourselves uh, other resources that we didn't have. So sometimes that what that means is reparenting ourselves. That means even in an imaginal, uh, sort of like an imaginary way, being going back to remembering when we learned those fear stories and imagining telling ourselves, our younger selves, a different story and apologizing that they didn't have another sense of belonging it that they needed to hate this group of people or this part of themselves or this other thing in order to feel like they belonged and reminding themselves that it's that their younger self that it's okay to let that go that that you needed that hatred or that fear for a time to keep you part of something but it's okay to not carry that anymore and then what that means is in your adult life, when you notice the, the anger or fear response to a, a different person and other coming up, that you take responsibility for that and remind uh, that old story. Oh, there's that old messaging again. Oh, yeah. That old story is just trying to help me belong. Okay, but am I okay? Do I need that story right now? No. Okay, so I'm going to, and then this is where it's helpful to do some regulatory practices to respond to that fear in a way that helps your body know, okay, the switch can be turned off, right? When the fear switch get turns, gets turned on, a lot of us freak out. We don't know what to do. We shove it down, but our body actually wants that switch to get turned off. So can I move into a practical? Yes, please do. So really little fascinating tidbit about embodiment. Um, and the connection between our brains and our bodies. Um, in fact, the more that we understand them, we see that there's some like, tissue that's housed in our skull, but actually our brain runs through our nervous system all the way down to our toes. So the distinction between these parts uh, is, is getting uh, narrow and nar more and more narrow as neuroscience progresses. But for every one neuronal message that goes from our brain to our body, we have nine body to our brain than brain. So there's actually more information moving from our body to our brain than down. So our body is a really powerful resource for shifting states. In fact, I might say if you're having like fear-based thoughts, trying to get out of your fear-based thinking with more fear-based thinking isn't going to work, right? So we actually need to be like, okay, let's abandon fear-based thinking or anger-based thinking for a while. Let's move into our body. And we can tell our brain that we're safe by doing things with our body that we only do when we're safe, by taking breaths that go deep into our belly, right? by breathing out and exhaling in these nice long ways that activate the branch of our nervous system that says, you're safe right now. Like if you think about when you're afraid or when you're angry, how often do you like, 
Like, it just doesn't happen. We're like, <laughs> like these really shallow, like kind of aggressive animalistic breaths. So what we're doing when we breathe in this really centered, grounded way is tell our thoughts moving up from our body all the way up to the top of our cortical tissue, I'm safe. And your brain goes, oh, yeah, I only breathe like that when I'm feeling safe. So I guess I must be safe. So would you be open to trying? Could we try that? I was just going to ask Nailed that. it. Yay. Boom. We're right on script, right? This is, this is great. great. <laughs> so uh, you can do this a few different ways. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're going to join with me in doing some breathing, that you would put your feet on the floor, that you would adjust how you're sitting to, to help yourself feel supported, to have your spine straight but not stiff. And you can do a few things. You can put your hand on your belly or you can put both hands on your sides of your ribs, whatever feels like it works for you. Uh, some people also like to put a hand on their chest, one hand on their belly, one hand on their chest. So just some way of connecting with sub-diaphragmatic organs and areas of your body. And what we're going to try and do as we breathe in at first is actually move either your lower hand or your ribs in some way. So breathe in such a way that you expand and your ribs either push your hands out or push your belly out. And if you have your hand on your chest, you want to be careful too. If you're breathing into your chest, your top hand will tell you. So you want to make sure that your lower hand is moving more than your top hand. So we'll do that a few times. It can also feel like overwhelming at first, like it's really, it's too much air if we're not used to breathing in that way. And then we're going to add in something that we call square breathing, box breathing. And so I want you to breathe in for four counts, whatever your four count is. Hold for three or four counts, and then breathe out for four counts, and then hold for three or four counts. So as you're doing this, I'll just rattle off some information. In cultures that have lower rates of anxiety, they breathe about four to five times a minute. Their breath is so slow that their nervous system, the fear response is basically perpetually turned off. So taking these nice, long, deep breaths in, pausing, breathing out, pausing. Now, if you want to take it a little bit deeper, what I would encourage you to do is breathe out for two counts longer than your breath in is. So in for four, pause for a few, out for six or seven. Just seeing if you can slow your exhale down all the way, pausing for a few breaths. And then we're going to add one more piece in. I want for you to think about breathing in something that you need, some quality, maybe something to get through the day, patience, grace, kindness, a sense of being loved. And imagine as you're breathing in that you're these nice slow breaths that you're pulling that into your body, holding it within your belly. And then as you exhale, I want for you to think about something that you are ready to let go of. Something that you're, maybe your body's holding that you don't want to carry. Maybe it's a frustration or some impatience, um, dissatisfaction, a, a criticism, a, a hurtful comment, whatever it is, a quality, and imagining that you can let that go as you exhale. And again, giving yourself just a little bit longer time to exhale than you do inhale. And then... Lastly, I'll invite you to pull your awareness back to see yourself in this rhythm of pulling in and letting go. 
taking in what you need, letting go of what you don't need, finding yourself lost in that rhythm, that continual rhythm of filling up and letting go. That at any moment of the day, you can always come back to this anchor of drawing in what you need and letting go of what's not working for you. One more cycle of breath, and then we'll come back to the room. Thank you. You're welcome. That was great. <laughs>